You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. This month is Women's History Month, and I'm looking forward to speaking with and learning from some phenomenal women. These women, in many ways, have shaped my life and work. We will celebrate the contributions that women have made throughout history from all corners of the globe. I am honored to introduce this week's guest, my friend and fellow seminarian, Kat Armas. Kat is one of the most brilliant theological minds I've had the pleasure of listening to. And if you don't believe me, after this conversation, visit her website, www.katarmas.com. That's www.katarmas.com. And subscribe to follow her podcast, The Protagonistas Podcast with Kat Armas. She is also the author of Abuelita Faith, set for release in August 2021. She is passionate about amplifying Latina perspectives and other perspectives of color as well. She is a bold, wise, and healing voice for the church and the broader culture. Listen in on my conversation with her, and I am certain you will be enlightened and richer because of it. Kat, thank you for being here on Intersections with Phil Allen, this guy, me, your former <laughs> classmate. <laughs> I want to I want to dive right in. Um, I know you're a busy woman um, in demand. Uh, I read a lot of uh, things that you've, you've you've published in magazines or, or podcasts. Or I've seen the long list of things you're engaged in. I love it. I love it. I get to say I sat next to her in class and, and listened to her. <laughs> Um, so we met at Fuller as, as classmates uh, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, people often ask me how I decided to go to Fuller, why I decided to go to Fuller and, or become a pastor, et cetera. And what they're really asking me is, what's your story? How'd you right. get here? How'd you end up here? Like people are curious about that. And as, as am I, um, I'm curious about how you got to where you are. Um, what is the story behind your quote unquote, becoming, I say becoming because we're always growing, evolving, right. moving from one season to the next. So up to this point in your life, what's the story um, behind behind your becoming? Where are you from, your passions, what led you to seminary and, and why'd you choose Fuller, things like that? Yeah, so um, thank you so much for having me. I, yeah, it's an honor to chat with you and it was great, it's great to catch up with you. I know we haven't been in the same space for a bit, so this is great. Um, well, how did I get to seminary? I mean, I, I love that question because I feel like a lot of people just sort of end up in seminary and they just kind of like stumble in there. Um, and that's sort of what happened to me. So I grew up um, in a Roman Catholic in an immigrant household, Roman Catholic uh, in Miami, Florida. My family immigrated here from Cuba uh, in at the height of the revolution in the late 60s. Um, and yeah, and, you know, spirituality, religion, faith for me was just part of, you know, my upbringing, but it was, you know, very formal, very Catholic, you know, very Roman Catholic, um, particularly through my grandmother and her faith. And so that's how I was raised. Um, when I ended up, you know, I ended up going to college and I got into psychology and I was a behavior therapist and a special ed teacher for several years. And then one day in my early 20s, I ended up in this evangelical conference. I had never been around the evangelical church. I had no idea what it was. I just sort of ended up there because I started listening to sermons in the car, you know, on a Christian radio station. Um, 
And it was very, for me, it was it, very captivating for me because, um, you know, faith and spirituality growing up connected to the Catholic church was very focused on the sacraments, focused on the saints. And then I get to this evangelical conference and people are like weeping and sobbing and like Jesus on a jumbotron. And I was like, what is this? You know, <laughs> um, I was so curious. Right. Um, and of course, as a young 20, you know, angsty 20, whatever, two year old or something, um, I was, you know, I wanted that emotional, whatever, you know, I saw. And um, so I quickly joined the evangelical church. Um, and as, you know, clearly uh, as someone who loves to learn because I um, ended up in seminary, but I just, you know, opened up my Bible and started reading it and reading commentaries and, you know, um, just completely digesting sermon after sermon because I was so curious about this, um, yeah, just this emotional, but also very, um, you know, quote, personal, you know, like it's a relationship, not a religion, you know, sort of idea. I was very curious about it. And um, prior to that, I hadn't, because my faith was very much focused on sacraments and saints, which is great. Um, I love that aspect of, of my upbringing and my spirituality, because now I can sort of connect, you know, the, the great things I learned from evangelicalism and, um, you know, let go of the not so great things. And also, um, you know, tie that into the wonderful things I learned about Catholicism for a very, I feel like what more well-rounded faith for me right now. But, um, but yeah, so I, I was just very curious about the Bible and, um, just all the weird and interesting and fun things I read in there. Uh, so uh, because I didn't grow up in the evangelical church, I didn't know anything about denominations. And I ended up as a, at a Southern Baptist seminary. I just had no idea what that meant. Wow. I just, yeah. Yeah, how, I, how'd um, that go? <laughs> it didn't go well, which is why okay. I ended up at Fuller. <laughs> okay. No, but um, I, I, there was just a mega church in my area. You know, it was a mega church in Miami. So I started going. I didn't know it was Southern Baptist. You know, one of those things are just like non-denominational, but really it's Southern Baptist. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, I was doing that. I was attending that. And then people were just saying, hey, you know, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. It's a seminary in New Orleans. And um, they had an extension campus in Miami. So that's how I kind of got connected so I just moved to New Orleans um, to start going. You know, I was like, okay, this sounds great. I, like I said, I was a behavior therapist and a teacher at that time, but I thought, you know what? Um, I'm gonna try this ministry thing. I was so, you know, overwhelmed and involved with the church and with, you know, growing in my faith and, and ministry and all these things that I just decided to take that route. Um, so yeah, I got there to to this Southern Baptist um, Seminary and. You know, it's, it was very much, you know, the subculture of the subculture of the subculture of white evangelicalism, um, and you know, in the middle of Louisiana. Now, New Orleans is a very diverse city, but this it, this was like, you know, in a literally barbed wired, like <laughs> fenced in. Yeah, it was very, very bizarre. Wow. Um, yeah, it was just a very bizarre um, campus, I guess you can say. And me coming from Miami, you know, raised by a single grandmother and a single mom and, you know, where women were just, you know, women provided and women did everything because you had to because, you know, you were the father and the mother and the grandmother and all these things. Um, I got there and it was just a huge culture shock, of course, you know, culture shock being a Latina woman straight from a very immigrant Latina city, you know, to this very white like enclave. Um, being a woman and being, you know, a non, you know, a non 
culturally white woman, right? Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, I mean, I remember my first week I got there and I had no idea. Again, I didn't know about Sonomany. I didn't know what white evangelicalism was. Yeah, <laughs> like, I yeah, just yeah. was like, cool, seminary, you know? Um, so I got there and the first week I was like, what am I doing here? You know, um, people would, you know, would look at me like, like if I was, you know, I had lost my mind because I was just like, you know, speaking out in class and, you know, saying all these things and just sort of, yeah, these are my experiences. Yeah. You know, you know, I came from a culture where you dance salsa on the weekends and you kiss people in the cheek when you see them. And, you know, it was just very intense for a lot of people <laughs> that I met. Um, and then of course the, the gender aspect of that, you know, um, so yeah, so I lasted about uh, two years there, two very hard years, but you know, I learned a lot of great things. And, um, and then I, you know, I realized after some time that I don't think I belong here. I don't think I fit here. I started asking a lot of questions theologically about, you know, being a woman, what does that mean? You know, I was told while I was there that I had a specific place and a specific role and a specific, you know, whatever that I had to, but, you know, fit in, but that didn't make sense to me growing up. That just didn't fit the mold that I, you know, was raised in. So I yeah. thought, you know, God, did you know, why did you, and I remember like, there would be times where I'd be like sobbing in bed, like, why did you make me like this? If I'm supposed to submit, like, why, you know, am I, you know, I was I raised Latina in, in the immigrant city with like single mom, you know, like, it just didn't make sense. Um, so then, you know, as someone who loves to learn, I just was like devouring scripture and everything I could about women and the church and all those things. And that sort of began my exodus um, from white evangelicalism. And then of course, it perfectly just blended in with uh, being a, you know, a Cuban woman, it just kind of all was together. You know, there's this quote that women of color don't experience sexism or racism separately, but racism is often sexualized and sexism is often mm. racialized. And mm. I felt that obviously ethnically more than racially, but I certainly felt that, right? Um, it was not just the fact that I was a woman, but it was the fact that I was, you know, from an immigrant family. Um, so yeah, so that was um, what led me to Fuller. <laughs> I literally Googled seminaries, women in leader. Like I had no idea what Fuller was. Again, I didn't grow up in yeah, the evangelical yeah. church, so yeah. I had no idea. So I literally just Googled like seminaries, women in leadership and Fuller popped up on my Google search. <laughs> and then, then there was like a page that, you know, it was like, there's, they literally have a link. I don't know if you've seen it on their website. This is women in leadership. And I clicked on it. Mm -hmm. I watched all the videos and I had just, you know, gotten married and I, you know, I looked at my spouse and I'm like, we got to go. And he was like, all right, where are we going? And I said, California. So we <laughs> packed up our car and we just drove, you wow. know, it took us a month, but yeah. And then, you know, I met you and so many other wonderful people. So it's been great. <laughs> you know, it, that's an amazing story. I, 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 I love it. I love it. Um, not just the content, but the way you delivered it is like, I, I could just sit <laughs> and just get some popcorn and just listen. Um, you said so much. And it was that was interesting as I was listening to you, I was thinking back to the first class we had together, at least that I remember, I think might've been Love Seacrest class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I just remember that class and maybe one or two other classes we had together that you would always say something profound. Like there would always be something like E.F. Hutton. Remember E.F. Hutton back in the day? Um, when EF when EF Hutton talks, people listen. Yeah. That's how I remember you. And so as I'm listening to you, I'm getting the same the same thing. Oh, um, thank you. So I want to ask you a couple of follow up questions. What did you equate? What was going through your mind when you mentioned the emotion that you saw in the evangelical conference or what have you? What did that? What was that analogous to? What what was it? What did you equate that to or ascribe that to? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
Well, like I said, I think it was all just a lot of it, just timing, right? Um, I, as a young angsty, you know, 20 year old, I, you know, I had just graduated college and I was just like, well, what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, you want to do something meaningful and you want to, you know, all those things. And of course I didn't understand um, a lot of what I understand now about systemic issues in the world and things like that. Um, But I just remember, I heard, you know, speakers just like, hey, you follow the Lord and you can do amazing things for people. You know, it was one of those, you know, um, like there was the sex sex trafficking campaigns and things like that. And I just remember feeling like, man, I I want to live a life where I'm not at the center of, you know, I mean, of course, it it matters that I am healthy and that I am, you know, all those things. But I I certainly wanted, um, yeah, just. And it sounds, it sounds very evangelically, but it just captivated me in a sense of like, man, this is cool. Like to um, care about something other than yourself so powerfully, you know, cause people are literally weeping in Jesus. And I, you know, I, I was like, what, you know, what is that? You know, growing up in Miami, it's, it, I just, I mean, I really, I just partied a lot. right? And I just, you yeah. know, it was just a very, so for me, it, there was something, it was very captivating for me. Um, and like I said, I think, it was, you know, timing was very big for me at that time. Um, but now looking back, you know, I, I do believe that even in, you know, I try and see parts of, of my time in, in whether it's white evangelical spaces or just evangelical spaces. And there's so much that, of course, I'm deconstructing and decolonizing and all this. But there are things that I think, you know, God works in little weird ways to bring us to where we are in spaces that maybe were unhealthy or spaces that were whatever. And I, I definitely see those threads, right? I see that that God was, was you know, kind of like um, pulling my heart for whether it's for justice or whatever it was and kind of preparing me in those moments. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was a little bit of that, I think timing and, and um, just this idea of, of being really passionate about, um, yeah, serving other people and through, through a love of God, right? Um, so yeah, so that was sort of what that did that for me. So, so how much, you mentioned something about evangelicalism and Catholicism, um, kind of um, like merging the two, I, I, if I heard you correctly, how much does your Catholicism still inform your faith today along with evangelicalism? Right. Yeah, that's that's a great question um, because that's huge for me right now. Um, so, you know, part of, uh, you know, this whole story that I'm sharing is that, you know, when I... Um, when I transitioned into evangelicalism and it was like a very reformed, you know, very conservative sort of um, evangelicalism, uh, it was very hard for me because of course the, the messages that I was hearing was that nothing but reformed and conservative evangelicalism is legitimate. Right. And so I just remember, you know, I had this, this, this upbringing that was very much informed by my Catholic faith. You know, I very much, I talk about this a lot in my upcoming book, but I, you know, there was, you know, the veneration of the saints was huge for me. And it wasn't in like a a quote unquote worshiping idols way. It was just petitioning on, you know, saints who came before us. Like, and it was very much, um, I felt very embodied in many ways. Um, You know, it was very big. Uh, growing up in an immigrant, you know, household, my grandmother would watch, um, it's called, you know, Univision, and she would watch like Spanish television, and the news channels would come up, and one of the, it was literally a segment that would come up every week, and it was um, where Mary, like, you know, the Virgin Mary would appear in different places in the city, and people would call the, you know, call the the news station, they would go, and sometimes an image of Mary appeared on the side of a wall, sometimes an image of Mary appeared on burnt toast, I mean, it was just this, but that was 
huge for me growing up. That was very formative because, you know, I was like, I always wanted to see where did Mary appear, you know, this week and oh my goodness, what if Mary appears to me? And it just spoke to me of a mysterious and grand God, right? So these are my experiences and this is what formed me. Um, you know, I, my, my grandmother's friends who lived in Little Havana, you know, in, in Miami and and she had altars in her house and, and, you know, we would sit there and we would pray the rosary in front of these altars. And, and that never felt, um, you know, that, that always felt so sacred and holy. It felt like a sacred and holy space, but then, you know, fast forward, you know, whatever, 10 years, 15 years. And I, I, I get introduced to evangelicalism and all of a sudden I'm, I'm taught to distrust these memories, right. Distrust these moments as like, well, that's, you know, paganism or whatever you know the devil deceived me I don't know whatever you want to say um that that my my grandmother and and these people that you know formed me weren't saved and then you know so that that caused such a crisis within me you know um I remember like really crying and praying and like lord save my grandmother she's been deceived you know for whatever <laughs> amount of years and yeah. looking back it's just I mean, I think that's so abusive in many ways, you know, like I, when I think of that, I'm like, man, that was a horrific time for me. So I think for me right now, it's really um, a looking back at, at those sacred and holy moments and with my grandmother and in, in the immigrant community of which I was raised and that faith and, and, you know, not allowing, you know, white evangelical theology to tell me that that wasn't legitimate, right? Um, so yeah, so it is very much a, um, I, again, I love the Bible, right? And so it is a, a, a holding the Bible, you know, um, as, you know, inspiring and inspired and, and having a high, high view of scripture, um, but also not discounting, um, you know, the faith that, that, you know, of which my grandmother and her community survived, right? Um, whether it's the, the Mary appearing on the side of a house that reminded them that God, you know, is, is for them and that God, you know, cares and is there, you know, so it really is um, of holding all of these things with an open hand and just trusting that the divine um, appears to different communities, how, you know, they need it or how God wants. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's so, that's so good. That's so good. You know, when I, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing, because it's similar to my experience as well. You know, we talk about how much we um, honor our ancestors. Um, right. And that's part of African, African-American culture, mm -hmm. tradition, right? And I think about white evangelical American Christianity and its whitewashing of culture mm -hmm. um, because of this, this binary thinking. It's either all this... Right. And right. none of that that you had before, because right. any of that means you're not here. You're not yeah. all in mm -hmm. here. And so you have to pick, which means you then have to kind of erase much of culture, history, mm -hmm. experience, because it doesn't fit in the narrative. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that's what I'm hearing from you. And I, and I think yeah. that can be disorienting for a lot of people and, right. and, 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 uh, causes a lot of people to not want to know this 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 Jesus we talk about if we have to do right. it that particular way. This is the only right. way. I had a conversation earlier today with a friend of mine and you know, I think people are more concerned about mastering God mm. than they are anything else. Yep. And if you don't fit in this box where we have mastered God, they'll never say it that way. 
But that's essentially what's happening. You're taking an infinite God yep. and putting them, putting God in this finite box yeah. to fit mm-hmm. our limitations. Mm-hmm. And it's in this box that you can understand God. Right. And so it becomes this, um, this, this, this idolatry of our own yeah. in, in intellect. Right. right. That reminds like, me. Um, sorry, I don't mean to no, cut go ahead, you off. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I just, I mentioned to you earlier about Willie Jennings book. Um, but something that was very helpful for me and what you're saying right now is that, you know, he talked about three characteristics of white supremacy and that's mastery, possession, and control. And Mm. exactly like what you said, you know, we do this to God. We try and master God, possess God and control God, but also white supremacy does that to people, to women, right? Um, you, you master, you master something, knowledge, you contain the knowledge and no one else does. And yes. only you can teach and you yes. can, here's a little bit of knowledge here. Like there, knowledge doesn't exist outside of that. Right. And then in that way you control and you possess, you know, take possession of the land, take possession of people, take possession of, you know, so anyway, yeah, I thought of that. And that, for me, that was so it, it made, you know, I was like, okay, yes. Like this is very clear for me. So yeah, yeah exactly what you're saying. And so you, you talk about, white supremacy, particularly innocent with its entanglement with um, Christianity, American Christianity, right? right? And, and, and controlling the narrative, controlling the theology, and we'll teach you because right. we know. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So you've just written a book that confronts that. I, I think just right. inherently mm-hmm. confronts that. Um, right. So I want you to, to share about your book. It's up for pre-order right now i want you to share um title content thesis what what is it about and then let's unpack that yeah yeah so my book is titled abuelita faith uh what women on the margins let me stop you for a wisdom. second see i'm glad oh. i had you say that because <laughs> I, I was not going to say it like that i don't know if you know i didn't say the title i wanted to hear yeah, you say, say it that's you're not the only one don't worry there's a lot of people that can't say my book title which i'm like i don't know if that's a good thing but no i think it's, uh, i think it's great i think it's great <laughs> yeah uh so yeah abuelita faith um abuelita um it essentially means grandmother faith and um the subtitle is what women on the margins teach us about wisdom persistence mm, and strength mm. um <laughs> yeah so so actually um kind of going off of what we were just talking about um you know, sort of like the, the central question that I ask in the beginning of the book is, you know, what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? You know, and I, I sort of wrestle with this um, idea of cognitive justice, right? In order to seek justice in the world, we need to seek, you know, sort of this this idea, what is knowledge? What is wisdom, right? Um, because yeah, white supremacy or the, you know, I say, I say a lot, the dominant culture, um, you know, tries to, again, they possess the knowledge, right? Um, in order to know things, we we have to learn from formal Western ways of knowing and Western ways of being. Um, yeah, but I, I sort of push against that. And I say, you know, for, for centuries, you know, since the beginning of time, we've had uh, particularly women, you know, of course I focus on women, but that have used alternate ways of being and knowing to pass on faith, um, to pass on spirituality, um, embodied ways, you know, and so I focus on things like using our hands, like how have women used their hands um, 
to sew and create and literally provide with their hands? And how has how does that speak to um, the faith that we inherit? How does it speak to spirituality? And so I also, um, I, I obviously look at my grandmother's life. I take bits and pieces from her life. Um, and also bits and pieces from women throughout history and, and movements led by women. Um, you know, like for example, I'm, I'm using the sewing example, you know, my grandmother, she um, had her own clothes making business from home. And so she provided for the family um, and she served, right? That's how she served the community. And she, and she provided for us, she made money um, through literally a needle and a thread and sewing and making clothes. Um, but then I, I go through how that has been a sacred practice throughout the, throughout history, right? That's been a sacred path in African, you know, I, I mentioned how in African communities, you know, um, what you wear symbolizes a lot of spirituality and, and symbolizes, you know, where you, your, your position in the community and your spiritual, you know, position. Um, and also women in the Bible, like Tabitha, you know, Tabitha, she, when she dies and, and, and Jesus, you know, goes, they, or excuse me, not Jesus, Peter goes to resurrect her. Um, the women bring the tunics that she made for them and they're weeping by her bed, you know, showing them like, look what she did for us, you know, and that was the way that she served and the way that she, you know, embodied that, you know, spirituality, Jesus says, right, she embodied Jesus's commands to, to serve and, and to um, all these things. And it was through the work of her hands, right, through making tunics and, and, and cloaks and those things. So, um, so yeah, I, I sort of challenge this notion of, of, of what is wisdom and what is knowledge and how do our grandmothers and our ancestors, um, how did they, um, or, or what can we learn from them about faith and spirituality that's not learned in a classroom or, and, and I love classroom education. I'm not, I'm not against that at all, but, you know, just other ways of, of being and knowing that um, empowers and, and not just empowers just to empower, but that reclaims, um, yeah, just a, a sacred spirituality that we can't learn from a book or a conference or in the classroom. So that's sort of a, a quick overlook. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love that word reclaim, because I think what we're doing is we're redeeming or reclaiming um, what has been pushed to the margins. Right. That has such value that has shaped us. And we didn't right. even know that this was theology that was shaping us, embodied right. theology shaping us, right? That yeah. we can't get away from. Um, you know, when I think about your book, I think about my, because the first time you, you, you brought it up, I heard you bring it up, was in a class that we took together. I think it was yeah, I, Old Testament, human rights mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, right? Yeah, and I love that you were one of the first people to hear about my, you know, what I was mulling over, so yeah. And, and I, so I, loved, I loved it from, 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 the, from day one. And it made me think about my grandmother, and I shared with someone recently, I didn't learn grace, the idea of grace, the concept of grace, theologically, through a sermon, through um, class and seminary. I learned it from my grandmother. Mm. My yeah. grandmother embodied grace. Mm -hmm. she, right. she, there's some lessons that, I mean, she's the only person that I could call for certain like egregious things that I did, right? Because I I I, I never expected condemnation from mm -hmm. her, not right. that she would just let me slide, right? But man, whenever someone talks about what grace is, mm -hmm. that's the first when I eulogized her at her funeral. That's what I talked about. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where beautiful. I learned grace. That's right. abuelita faith mm -hmm. theology. 
embodiment, Amen. embodiment, right? Amen. That has shaped right. us, yes. right? And so why, yes. why is that on the margins? Why can't that be at the right? table? Amen. I'm trying to do that. So <laughs> yes, I'm right there with you. <laughs> um, I, I hear some womanist theology mm-hmm. in there. Is that, and for anyone who's listening, can you maybe explain what womanism is? But has that influenced you in any way in how you uh, wrote this or approached this? Yeah. Um, so actually... You know, I'll kind of go into a little bit of what, um, you know, how this speaks to uh, more than just, you know, Latina, Latino, Latinx culture. Um, but yeah, I well, I'll start with, um, you know, sort of what what got my my wheels turning about this. And I'm sorry, I will answer your question about womanism. No, 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 no. <laughs> I realize you asked me that. Yes, um, so what kind of got my wheels turning about this um, and and then, you know, how I started seeing this in so many and not just, you know, of course, it stems because I'm a Latina woman. It stems from my social location. So, yes, through a Latina lens, um, but it's certainly not just a, a Latina like you just you just express like your grandmother was sort of the beacon of spirituality and, and sort of that word grace and that idea of grace and in your life. but. Um, you know, I was reading the scripture one day and I was on second Timothy one, and I sort of, you know, glazed over this, this verse, you know, in the intro, we sort of, you know, kind of, okay, intro, cool. And, you know, we move on. Um, but it really stuck out to me, you know, Paul tells Timothy, um, you know, uh, I should have it here, but you know, he says like something about the faith that lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and lives, you know, in you now. And then he says, you know, something, he, uh, he, he alludes to the ancestors, and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. So like Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, who's like, you know, this very important character at the time. And he's literally saying the faith that lives in you is from your ancestors, particularly mm-hmm. your grandmother, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, why is this verse just overlooked? Like, I want to know about, you know, Abuela, I call her Abuela Lois and, and you know, Mama Eunice. I want to know about these women. Um, and so that sort of, you know, got my wheels turning, um, realizing that this is obviously not just a, a, a Latinx reality, you know, this is something that is as old as time, you know, that the faith of our grandmothers, you know, the faith of Timothy's grandmother formed him and that is huge, right? Um, and so as I began having more conversations and as I began reading and, and looking for these things, I mean, it was everywhere. And actually it was a class that I took where you were the TA with MLK, the MLK class, um, which is a wonderful class and reading about, you know, MLK's relationship to grandma Jenny. And when the two instances that he thought that grandma Jenny had died, he tried to commit suicide. Yep. You know, that's how close King was to his grandmother and then learning about Thurman and then learning about, you know, um, Nancy Ambrose, I believe is, is his grandmother's name and, and how she was so influential in writing Jesus and the disinherited. And then how King carried a copy of Jesus and the disinherited, you know, so yeah. all these pieces, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And like you said, this isn't central to our theology. This is just a, you know, a cute little side thing, but it's not, you know, um, you know, King, we wouldn't be where we obviously where we are if it wasn't for King and King wouldn't be who he is without his grandmother and without Thurman. And, you know, it's just all these so, so powerful, right? So powerful for me. So um, to answer your question, yes. So I, I take so much of, um, you know, Latina and, and Black women's theology, womanist theology, and mujerista theology. And these are essentially, um, you know, the, the very basic, you know, term, uh, liberation theology from a Latina perspective or from a Black woman's perspective. And, you know, and, you know, that intersection is important. Woman, uh, Black, you know, and woman, Latina. 
Um, and it's the idea of, you know, reading scripture through a liberative lens, um, but through the lens of, of uh, Black and, and Latina women, respectively, you know, mujer, or womanist and mujerista. So I take a lot of that and I take a lot of decolonial um, ways of reading scripture, because again, I'm trying to look at um, non-Western ways of being and knowing uh, as we know it, right? Modern, Western, whatever, 21st century you want to call it, yeah. ways of being and knowing. Um, and of course, you know, I say in my book, I'm a Western individual. So, you know, everything I do is going to be filtered through a Western lens. Of course, I'm on the same journey of decolonizing as we all are, of course. Um, but yeah, it's this idea of of pulling these um, threads and and seeing what just nuggets there are. And as I'm searching through scripture, I'm searching through history. I'm, you know, as I'm sure you know, right, um, uh, the the bus boycott, right? It was started by a group of women, right? Joanne, uh, yeah. Robinson. It was started by a group of, yeah, there you go. I was like, my last, last name, Joanne Robinson. It was started by a group of women. Um, you know, I think of uh, right before the revolution in Cuba, there was a dictator by the name of uh, Bautista, Fulgencio Bautista, and he was a super corrupt leader. And it was women who behind the scenes were organizing and we're doing all these campaigns to get him out of there and so all these movements throughout history um all of this these this the, these theological things throughout scripture you know you learn obviously about the exodus narrative and and how women played the major role in the beginning of the narrative and all these things that you're like this is all grandmother theology right abuelita theology and it makes sense that these for the you know all these women of color who have been doing these things you know these stories are untold, you know, for the most part, people don't know that it was black women who began, you know, this movement, or people don't know that it was Cuban women who, who began, you know, the revolution, like people don't mm. know these things. Um, so anyway, I, I say all this to say, or yeah, people don't, you know, Moses in the Exodus story is the one that we focus on, right? He's the liberator, but Moses wouldn't have liberated if it wasn't for the midwives and if it wasn't for yep. his mother, yep. you know? Yep. Yep. So all of that to say that yes, there. This is so global and so historical and so, um, yeah, like you said, not. Um, it's not a marginal thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like central, right? Um, but it does speak to the fact that women and people of color have been thrust to the margins in the telling, you know, who tells history and who tells the stories in the telling of these stories. Um, but it doesn't mean that they weren't at the center. It doesn't mean that, you know, so that's why we say, right, like we don't want to invite these people or, or people who have been thrust to the margins to the table. They have, we have our own tables, right? We just need to um, be the one telling the stories. So, Absolutely. so yeah, that's, um, yeah, a little bit of that. As what's interesting is the Bible itself was not written by the dominant culture. It was written from right. the margins. Right. But co-opted by power. Yep. And then transformed into something very different that right. we we have inherited today right and so getting back to our roots what you're right. presenting in your book is inviting us back to right um where we started from the margins mm -hmm. and centralizing exactly. those voices exactly you know you talk a lot about your grandmother and i want to hear i want to hear more about her <laughs> so i want to shift a little bit to you know this is women's history month and all month we're going to be um, listening to voices. I'm going to be in conversation with, with voices from different backgrounds, different cultures, um, just talking about the, 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 the treasure 
uh, that women are to our society. Mm-hmm. So I want you to talk more about your grandmother, but I also want you to tell us about a, a woman or women in particular that have so influenced you, whether it's a historical figure or a current figure or both that have influenced you that you want to tell us about, that we should know about, that we should learn 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 from. Yeah. So actually there's um, something that you said that speaks to this and how you were talking about the Bible is written by people in the margins. It is. Uh, so it, it, you know, what we're doing is we are just reclaiming, right? We're not rewriting. We're not, you know, we're just reclaiming. We're just um, reading it how it should be read. <laughs> um, but this reminds me of uh, this one woman throughout history. She's actually still alive. Uh, she won a Nobel Peace Prize several years ago. Her name is Rigoberta Menchu, and she's a Quiche Mayan indigenous woman from Guatemala. And, and <clears throat> this woman, and, and I learned about her researching my book. And what I loved about her so much and I'll, I'll give more details about her now, but what I loved about her so much is that um, she talks about how the Bible, she, she says, you know, people who re- people with privilege who read the Bible um, don't realize that, or they miss so much about the Bible because the Bible is for us. And she's talking about her indigenous community in Guatemala, you know, far from the city, lives off the land. And she said, you know, the Bible was written for us. And she's like, so we understand the Bible. We're the ones, we're uneducated and we're not, you know, she's like, but the Bible taught us. So her story is that um, the Guatemalan government during the civil war, they tried to, you know, just eradicate the indigenous population and take the land from them, of course. And so all of these, the businesses wanted to be, you know, wanted to build on the land. And so they wanted to get rid of essentially just, you know, extinguish all the people right commit complete genocide as often happens with native communities and um you know menchu organized her entire community without formal you know weapons right the way that we understand weapon weaponry whatever you want to call it um without you know any sort of um modern sort of technology and she was able to organize her community um and fight against these you know the, the government and fight you know she was able to entrap soldiers and like all of these incredible things and to the point that she was you know led her community to victory and she won a nobel peace prize um and she literally says it was the bible that taught me how to fight <laughs> you know she's like i read stories of of you know people the marginal the, you know israel when they weren't an established nation and they literally fought against the the powers that be and she talks about how yeah the, the bible taught me how to fight and the bible taught us how to organize and the bible taught us how to and i thought that was so incredible and it was just a reminder you know we we say so much about yeah well you know the bible is is has been you know co-opted right or the bible has been um, you know, the Bible is a tool for, has been used as a tool for oppression and the Bible has been used to justify all sorts of evil. And that's all true, 100%. But I don't want to forget how the Bible has also been used by oppressed and marginalized people, um, for their own liberation and for, you know, their own freedom. And so I, I, that was, I I highlight her in my book because I think that's so important. Like, I don't want to just tell one side of the story. I want to tell both. Like the Bible is used as a tool for oppression, but man, the Bible is 
was used, you know, for indigenous um, people to literally fight against, you know, the, the government who is trying to exterminate them. So I thought that that was um, so interesting. So she's a woman, definitely throughout history, um, you know, and, and her just organizing and her, you know, like fighting against, you know, these powers is fascinates me and how she is so rooted in in scripture in that sense. Um, so yeah, so that, I would say that that's definitely one of them. And then of course my grandmother, you know, as you mentioned, you, you said you wanted to hear more about her. I mean, her faith was, um, it was like you said, so embodied her faith. It was just, it wasn't something that she, it wasn't like her life and then like her spirituality and her Christianity, but it was just, it was embodied. It was all in one. I mean, from, like I said, from her sewing and, and from her, the, her business that she ran from home, that was a way that she lived in her faith. Uh, and there's a chapter in my book that I talk about um, dance, you know, and how dance has always been a sacred art and, you know, how Miriam danced when she led the people out of, um, out of Egypt, right? And that was a way for my grandmother um, to connect with the divine through the movements of her body, through her dance and how for her, that was such a, um, she came to life, right? Um, in her gardening, right? In her taking care of the earth and her sticking her fingers in the dirt um, and how she, you know, fed us through the plants mm. in her garden. Um, you know, that's a sacred uh, place where she met God. Um, you know, and then I also think of other other uh, things that she did. Like, for example, uh, my grandfather died before I was born, her husband. And um, a, a man from church uh, became her best friend and fell in love with her. And he, for 30 years, I mean, I, we, we don't even know how many times he proposed to her, you know, and she would always say, no, you know, my first love is, is Roberto, you know, her husband or her first husband, that's my first love and my only love, you know, um, and they always stayed friends, you know, but um, it wasn't until he was like 93 and she was like 85 and he got really sick and he didn't have any family. His family lived elsewhere and, you know, they didn't really pay attention to him. And for years, she didn't want to marry him because she, you know, her love was her first husband. But as soon as Mario, which is, you know, this man, as soon as he got sick, um, she realized like, well, who's going to take care of him? Who's going to sign his papers? Who's going to, you know, literally just like be able to sign for him and pay for these things? And who's going to be able to like, do all these, um, you know, formal things, you know, once he passes or if he gets sick again, because he has no one. And so she finally married him at like 93. And I like to say that she shamed the notion of marriage, right? Traditional, because she's a traditional Catholic woman. She shamed the notion of marriage. She even shamed the whole system by marrying him for legal purposes, right? Um, but she kind of stepped in when she needed to step in and she did the thing she needed to do. And he was, you know, he died like five or six years later. Um, and he was, you know, he died the happiest man in the world because he got to marry his love, you know. But I feel like that's so, um, to me, that speaks so much to like the subversive sort of way of being and living of just, you know, doing what you got to do when you do it and and shaming things when you got to shame them and doing not doing things the traditional way, but just, you know. Um, and I see that so much again in the women in scripture, how they just like, figure stuff out, you know, and they do things the non-traditional way and they lie to empire and they lie to Pharaoh and they deceive and they steal and God is still calls them blessed. And how does that make sense? You know, but, but it's, again, it's, it's this, you know, way of being and knowing that we don't understand in our current, you know, ways of understanding the world, but, but there's something, I think there's something holy and sacred there. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. Kat, I could listen to you all day. I can't wait till you get your degree. I'm going to come and audit a class one day. 
Oh my goodness. Um, some may see it as lying, manipulating, but it's the, it's the, it's improvisation. Right. To survive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it's what you have to do mm -hmm. when you're confronting power. Right. It is your resource, your improvisation, your creativity. It is your resource. Right. Because you don't have the same level of power in that sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is some some holiness to that, some sacredness mm -hmm. to that ability to improvise, to maneuver, right. to juke and jive, as mm -hmm. to use a sports term. Right. We, we, we mm -hmm. glorify and we celebrate the running back who can deceive and make someone miss the quarterback mm -hmm. who can fake someone out. But right. in real life, they're doing it in the game to win the game. Mm -hmm. And they have to because that big 250-pound linebacker is coming to tackle the court. The running back has to fake them out, right? Right, right, right. And that's power. That linebacker represents power, government, mm -hmm. um, the state. And sometimes, when you're, particularly when you're from the margins, you have to juke yeah. and jive. You have to mm -hmm. pump fake. You have to be able to do that to survive and ultimately thrive in right. this culture. Um, and God calls that blessed, you know? Yes. Like you see God's on that side when that happens in the Bible and even in history. I mean, you see how, yeah, people um, achieve different levels of liberation. Um, and, and, and I believe God's, you know, in, in, intricately and intimately part of that process. Yes, yes. I, I want to I wanna go even more focused on women in leadership in the church. Um, I know this can be a sticky subject for a lot of people. What are your thoughts on the progress or inertia for women in leadership roles, both in society um, or, or in society versus in the church? Um, yeah. Is the church behind? Is the church keeping up with? Um, is, is society moving still too slow? What, what are your thoughts on, on women in leadership? As you just laid out all the contributions of women in these significant movements that did not get the recognition um, in right. our society, but particularly in the church, just share some of your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, you know, this is so complicated for me, you know, like when Kamala Harris, um, you know, became vice president, I was so obviously thrilled and so happy, but also I'm like, it's 2021. She should have been president 10 years ago, you know? So like, it's just like this conflicted feeling, like I'm rejoicing, but I'm also like, Ugh, you yeah, know, yeah, like it's, yeah. it's so, it's, ugh, it should have happened so long ago and she shouldn't be vice president. She should have been president. But anyway, um, so yeah, I feel so conflicted because I do want to celebrate and I'm also mourning um, just how, you know, not far we've, we are, um, but yes, we have made so much progress. Um, you know, that was something that I took women in, in church or women in history or something like that with um, John Thompson uh, several years ago in my, you know, in my early in my fuller career. And that was very influential for me. Actually, that was the first time that I really began thinking about, wait a minute, there's been so many white, you know, European women um, who have done incredible things throughout history and have literally been martyred and been burned at the stake and, you know, have done so much um, within the church, you know, and that's what sort of sparked me. But how about Cuban women, right? Like, how about, like, what have Latino women done? Um, because we definitely don't hear the stories of European women. We, I mean, we don't hear the stories of European women and we definitely don't hear the stories of, you know, Latina or Black women. I mean, until recently, a little bit more. But um, 
so yeah, so I think, um, you know, we, we have gone a long way or we have come a long way, but, um, you know, so much of that ideology and so much of those, you know, ideas and so much of that, those toxic beliefs are just, they're still there, you know, they're, they live in our bones and in our body and, and, you know, you know, just like how we talk about, you know, racism is still so alive and well in our, in our minds and, and in the way society functions, you know, it's the same thing with sexism. Um, and yeah, it's just still really messy. Um, but I, you know, I wouldn't be where I am again without, you know, our ancestors, right? Like these women who, who have fought, um, tooth and nail, um, and, and gotten us to where we are. And I, you know, I, my goal is to just join those cloud of witnesses, um, you know, for our future generations and our future daughters. And so we still have so much, so much to do and so much more to grow um, in so many areas with all the isms and with ableism and homophobia and, you know, all the isms and racism and sexism, um, you know, but I think that there is so many of us who we are, you know, we're, we're doing the thing and we're fighting the fight and yeah, we're not going to stop. And so, so yeah, I, I do feel a little conflicted, um, but I do see, you know, in so many spaces where women, um, you know, have been, or have, you know, well, I'll, I will say this. So when I left the, the Southern Baptist Church because of women, the, the, you know, the whole idea, obviously, of women, I remember thinking like, you know, what is it going to take for folks, you know, because I really was an outlier. I was very loud about it. You know, I left and I wrote about it. And so there was a lot of drama, you know, in my life at that time, because I was very honest about my experiences and, and I, you know, I regretted it at first. And then I didn't, of course, but um, I remember I was very, very honest, very loud about it, like loud about my exodus and like, Hey, this is very sexist and racist and, you know, whatever. And I just remember thinking like, what is it going to take? You know, like, you know, I, I sound like literally like I, I like a crazy person. I don't like to use that word, but I sound like someone, you know, who is whatever and, and I, an outlier. And then literally less than a year later, I believe it was like eight months later, um, all the, the 750 sexual abuse scandals, you know, came out and it just exploded, right? And I, I remember just sitting there like, oh my gosh, because it was obviously specifically about the denomination that I was speaking from and to. And my inbox flooded with messages like that week of like, hey, Kat, do you have resources? Like, where can you point me? Like, I want to learn more about this topic. And it was just like this, oh my goodness, you know? Um, so it was literally like one of those things, like, you know, I, I sound like someone who is just like yelling to like, you know, whatever. And I- Like a prophet? Just, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and then less than a year later, people are like, whoa, you know? So anyway, I'll, I say all that to say um, that I, I see you know, things are going to keep coming to light, right? And, and things are going to keep being exposed. And I believe because the Bible says that's going to happen. And in the sense that, you know, darkness does not stay in darkness all the time. And, you know, darkness is eventually exposed. And I, I see this happening in a lot of little ways, you know, with movements like Black Lives Matter and the, the you know, things like that, right? Things are being exposed. Um, and, and we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna keep doing our thing. And as more and more things keep being exposed and, and coming to light and keep fighting the fight. So anyway, I, I, I wish we were further along, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for, for movements like the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement and all these movements and social media can be terrible, but it can be wonderful for those reasons. So, yeah. So, so my, my next question was gonna be, what do we need to do? What needs to happen? I think you answered that we need the prophetic voice 
of the church or the prophetic voice yeah. in general. Um, right. Paul Tillich talks about the manifest church, mm. the b believers, but also mm -hmm. the latent church, mm -hmm. people who aren't necessarily believers, but they're operating and functioning in ways that align with the cause of God, like justice, mm, yeah. right? And so Paul yeah. Tillich calls in the latent church, like mm. an extension of the church. Um, right. And so that prophetic voice has to be amplified, both within the right. church and within right. our culture. I posted something this past week. There was a quote by Michael Novak mm -hmm. saying, a nonprofit church will decline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nonprofit P R O F E P H E T profit. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where I feel like we've been. We've been a right. nonprofit church, at least in some parts of the church. Right. And what you're saying is that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. That needs to keep mm -hmm. happening so that we can continue mm -hmm. to move forward or quicken the pace, actually. Right. 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 Um right. what's next for cat? Armas. Yeah. So, um, I, well, I just relaunched my podcast, um, in January. So I'm just, you know, trucking on that. Um, so if you want to check out the protagonistas, the protagonistas, um, I focus on women of color and church leadership and theology. Um, so I'm just working on just getting interviews and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm hoping to get into a PhD program at the end of the year in the fall. Um, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and then um, I, I just jumped on another book project and I'm really excited about this one. Um, the, it was just the press release came out recently, but um, it's on um, a, a reflection on Psalm 37 um, by women of color. And so there's like, I think 30 of us um, who are writing devotionals and um, po poetry and all these things. And it kind of centers around the wailing women um, in Jeremiah. And so it's sort of this idea that you know, wailing women was like a legitimate role, right? Um, during this time and people needed women to lament or people needed wailing women in order to, to move forward, to heal, to, to lament, to, you know, all these things. So yeah, we're just wailing, you know, just wailing. Wow. Um, so it's a book of just wailing. Um, so I, I just, you know, jumped on that project and, and that'll be out, um, in 2022. And then I did sign a two book contract. So I have to start working on my second book. <laughs> I'm like, I just need a second for writing, but yeah, so I'll be working on a second book. Um, and that is going to, um, there's still, you know, information on that won't be out for a bit, but, um, yeah, I want to, I want to look at, continue looking at the Bible through a decolonial lens. So, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Now, where can we, where can people buy the book, um, Abuelita Faith now? Yeah, so um, it's being published through Brazos Press, um, but you can find it on any of your, you know, bookseller of choice. Um, you know, if you want to request it, that would be great, like at a library, your local or your local bookstore or your local thrift, thrift bookstore. Um, uh, obviously, it's not out for thrift yet, but yeah, just any small bookseller, if you want to request it, that would be great. But yeah, you can find it anywhere, I hope. <laughs> awesome, awesome. You know, I, I really I want to close with these thoughts. I really want people to to soak up, to listen to this podcast twice, at least. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was so much rich, not just information, um, um, but storytelling, um, sharing of your life and your experience, um, theology, um, biblical narrative, that 
I think can can reorient people in how they see scripture, how they see Jesus, how we see each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I think getting back to this space of reading the Bible, seeing Jesus from the margins as opposed to power as Mm -hmm. we've inherited has salvific implications. Amen. And I don't mean salvation in the sense of heaven or hell, but right. kind of a penultimate salvation, like a now, like a rev- not just revival, the way we understand revival in terms of events where preachers come in and you have the worship team and the lights, camera, action, but salvific in the sense that we're headed down a direction that is unhealthy, that is not mm-hmm. healing our land. Um, and God has always mm-hmm. called the people of God to to step up, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to be the prophetic voice, yeah. uh, to embody it, I should say. The prophets speak it, but the, the people collectively embody it, right? Right. And so I think that you your, your voice is not only is, is already amplified, but should continue to be. So I want people to Thank really you. soak up what you're saying and, and who you are. Um, I've, I, you know, those of you who don't know who she is, uh, for those of you who are listening, um, take it from me. I've listened to her. This is not my first time listening to her. We didn't just, I didn't just hear about her and invite her to be on. Like I know her, um, Mm -hmm. as much as I can from, from a distance as a classmate, I'll say that much. Um, but I, I know enough in hearing her, the consistency, the wisdom, um, that this is not something to just listen to. It's cool. And then move on. I, I really want people to soak up what's what's been spoken today. And I'm grateful that you took the time out of your day to share and, and engage with me in this conversation. I, I'm better for it. Um, mm. And so I thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, Phil. This is great. I loved reconnecting. We got to do it again. We got to keep collaborating. Yes. yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. All right. I will talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Don't forget to purchase her book, Abuelita Faith, due out August 2021, but it's ready for pre-order wherever you purchase your books. Check out her podcast, The Protagonistas Podcast with Kat Armas, and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Kat Armas. That's K-A-T underscore A-R-M-A-S. That's Kat underscore Armas. And on Facebook, Kat R. Armas. Visit her website, www.catarmas.com. And if you haven't already, please go purchase my book, Open Wounds, now available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and fortresspress.com. The book is entitled Open Wounds, a story of racial tragedy, trauma, and redemption. Until next week, we're back engaging the intersections. Thank you for listening as always. Thank you for your time parking with me at the intersections. <laughs>